Rewind. Your week in review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This week on Rewind, your week in review. The legislative maps are finally here. Republican lawmakers released their redistricting plan. We have in-depth coverage on what their proposed map looks like and what these changes could mean for voters. Plus, the reaction from Democrats who are calling the GOP maps rigged. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for October 22nd. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Well, JRS, this is your big day, right? Your big week uh, to nerd out, geek out yes. about the redistricting plans. Thank the you. maps are finally out. Yes. We're going to take a really big deep dive, kind of okay. taking it by section by section. The first, I guess, big headline is that the GOP maps really just maintain a lot of their large majorities compared to the 2011 map when they had uh control of the legislature and were able to enact them. Um, so let's just first uh, talk about the GOP redistricting maps. Um, you'll see on your screen the assembly map, the Senate map, and the congressional map. Um, so under these current maps, uh, I guess, what are some of the key takeaways, uh, JR, that you're looking at? Big picture, a couple months ago, because uh, you're almost going to court in the end, right? I had a couple people argue me that Republicans would go for a more moderate or quote-unquote fair map when it comes to the partisan balance because it would make, strengthen their hand with the state Supreme Court and getting the court to buy their map in whole. That's not what they did. With almost surgical precision, they basically went for a maximum Republican performance map with the lines that we have. So now, uh, there's not really a lot of perfect ways to kind of judge districts because it's not always what top the ticket happens, but top the ticket's a good starting point in the discussion. So looking at the 2020 election, which is a 50-50 like down the line race, right, in Wisconsin, under the maps that are currently in place, Joe Biden won more votes than Donald Trump in 37 assembly districts. Under this current map, the map that's proposed, he would have won 35. All right, and remember, he won statewide 50% of the vote. That's less than 50% of the districts right. in the assembly. Uh, under both maps, he would have won 11 Senate districts. Congressional maps, um, the third district of West Wisconsin went toward Trump. It had been kind of trending that way a little bit in years and kind of went full Republican the last two cycles it would still be a 6-2 map, although this map would strengthen the GOP's hand in the third district. So the bottom line is Republicans said, hey, we can do this, and we're going to do it. The state U.S. Supreme Court, remember, uh, said we're not going to weigh in on partisan redistricting, partisan gerrymandering claims. They opened the door to not just Wisconsin, but Illinois, um, all kinds of other states to do this and say, okay, we want to see if we maximize our performance. And Republicans did a pretty good job trying to maximize their performance. And, of course, with any map that was going to be released by Republicans, there's going to be criticism, yep. right? Almost immediately we heard from um, Gordon Hintz, the Assembly Minority Leader, calling these new maps nothing more than gerrymandering 2.0. Governor Evers uh, yesterday released a statement signaling that he is going to veto these maps if they stay as is and make it to his desk, which we know with Republicans in control of both chambers, they're going to make it to his desk. Um, and, quote, he said, Republicans will have to do better than this if they expect me to sign either of those bills. They need to go back to the drawing board. But, of course, Speaker Voss is defending mm -hmm. them. Uh, the legislature took into account plans submitted from all citizens, um, touting that he got input from a large majority of people and that he took input from the Governor's People's Maps Commission. So he's confident these maps are fair for all Wisconsinites. Um, you know, let's talk about kind of a little bit of the timeline, right? We mm -hmm. know next Thursday there's going to be a public hearing, which kind of kicks off the 
the debate, um, yep. I guess, on these maps. Yep. Then they will be on the floor the first week of November, so they'll take them up likely one of those two weeks. Then the governor's going to veto them. Look, even if they change them, he's going to veto them anyway <laughs> because these are not what he wants. He'll veto them. Then we're off to court. And the question becomes, how's that process going to work? The interplay between the state Supreme Court and the federal court, which wants an update November 6th, remember, about how things are going with the state Supreme Court case to know where it's going to go with its proceedings. And uh, I know we kind of also have another comparison slide when we kind of look into the Assembly and Senate maps and the uh, the differences between 2011 and 22. Um, We're kind of going to go into the weeds a little bit about Dana, Milwaukee specifically. But uh, overall picture, I mean, I call them the squiggly lines, right? Mm -hmm. They draw them uh, like that. not dramatic, but no. a little bit a little bit of a difference. Republicans on these maps with a, a criteria of trying to maintain as much of the core districts you have in place right now as possible. Um, so that's what they did. They, they maintained mm-hmm. the majority that they have and built it in. Now, let's be honest. Even if you have a nonpartisan arm, try to draw maps, there is a Republican advantage geographically in Wisconsin. Democrats tend to live in urban areas. When you live in urban areas or pack in urban areas, it's easier to put you into districts in which you earn fewer spots, right? Because we don't have a great right now Democratic representation in rural Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. The numbers have cratered there for them. They're not great numbers. It's hard to draw a true 50-50 map. That said, Republicans have taken advantage of the tools at their disposal to lock in some gains. And what's interesting things, though, we talk about Dane County. Let's go there. Dane County is driving or helping to drive Wisconsin's population growth. Dane County grew at 15% over the last decade. One of the, the fastest sta- growing cities in Wisconsin, yeah. Uh, state, counties. Yep, state 3.6%. There are currently 12 assembly districts that have a significant portion of Dane County. Under the map, proposed, there are still 12. Even though Dane County grew significantly, their power politically would not grow in the Republican maps. Now, how do they do this? You just move the lines here and there. We've talked before. We're just like uh, squeezing the air in a balloon. Mm-hmm. Anytime you push somewhere, it's got to go somewhere else. They do little things like take the southwestern corner of the Dane County uh, District and move a line here, move a line there, and they make it work. So that's how they get to a a situation where even though Dane County is growing, it doesn't get more seats. And it could also be the sense where I live on this side of the street, but (laughs) if in the new maps, I can be on the other side. And just overall, too, you know, what's hard sometimes for people to realize is why why do I care, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, we know statewide elections are nail biters, but what happens with these maps are that legislative and Senate seats, you know, there's barely competition. So... When you want to talk about who represents you and where you live, it could be major changes of who, who's going to be representing you. And why it matters, because if these maps became law, and I'm not saying they will because mm-hmm. we're a long way from the courts being done with this, if the top of the ticket performs the same as down ticket, you're talking about a veto-proof majority for Republicans in the state Senate. In the Assembly, you're talking about being two seats away for veto-proof majority. And now, again... In Wisconsin, there are still a handful of seats that don't always act top of ticket as bottom of ticket. Now, southwestern Wisconsin, for example, is one area where sometimes you have a little bit of a difference. That said, you'd be two seats away. If these maps became law, even if Governor Evers won re-election in 2022, Republicans would be on the verge at any moment, at any election moment, of having an ability to basically sideline him, pass whatever they want, and override his vetoes if they could maintain, you know, 
unanimity on a veto override. Exactly. Um, let's just quickly uh, highlight Milwaukee County because we're going to touch on the people's maps in a little bit too. But um, there, there was, there was. I mean, I keep saying this. There was some shift, mm-hmm. and specifically um, about the Senate map that was proposed um, when we look at um, the Biden districts and comparing them from election years. Yeah. So here's again an example of just that pushing the air of the balloon. So. Um, Yes, there are still 11 Biden districts on the new map, but what Republicans want to do would really strengthen their hand in the Milwaukee suburbs where they've really been hurt strong, by well, Donald yeah. Trump, mm-hmm. right? Let's look at the 5th fifth, fifth Senate district. Now it's represented by Dale Kayenga, a Republican from Brookfield. He is the top target for Democrats in 2022. Joe Biden won his seat on our current lines by 9,455 votes. On the proposed map, he would won by about 570 votes, okay? Mm. Now, Biden lost the 8th Senate District, represented by Alberta Darling, by 167 votes. Under the map proposed, he would have lost it by about 5,900 votes. All right? Now, how do they do that? Well, the 4th and the 6th Senate Districts are heavily Democratic, also two majority black districts in Wisconsin, the state Senate. They made them more Democratic. Right. Again, pushing the air of the balloon, moving lines here and there, helps produce a situation where even though Democrats can win statewide, they are not in a position on these maps to win a majority in either House of Legislature. Yeah, and Senator, Senator T, uh, Lena Taylor also um, weighed in on the first uh, drafts of the maps, and she said, and quote, the idea of any commission that can produce such a redistricting map that could wipe out a black representation in the state Senate is unconscionable. Well, that's about the people's maps, though. Sorry. Oh, um, I'm out of order. I apologize. So we got a lot of maps, maps. people. <laughs> we got okay. a lot of maps. I'm a lot sorry. of lines. Let's do you let's jump there then. Okay. okay. So the people's maps. Now that was also they finally also dropped this yes. week. So they're not done yet. Mm-hmm. They had the first round of lines that came out uh, September thirtieth, twenty ninth, something like mm-hmm. that. They got criticized because they would reduce the number of majority black, majority Hispanic districts under the maps. They would be more fair, quote unquote. I use the air quotes for fair because that's a loaded word when you talk about maps. I'm saying fair as in like partisan balance. But the maps would be more fair uh, to Democrats in terms of like what they could win in the partisan balance statewide. But in doing so, they again drop the number of majority black and Hispanic districts. That's Lena's issue is you can't do that. Now, here's the deep in the weeds part of this. The Voting Rights Act says that you have to give communities, uh, minority communities, the opportunity to elect a candidate of their choice. Okay. The question is, what is that line to hit that benchmark? So right now, we have two majority black Senate districts in Wisconsin, six majority black assembly districts, two majority Hispanic districts. There is an idea being pushed in some legal circles of uh, coalition districts. What that means is that you're not necessarily a majority black, majority Hispanic district, but you are not a majority white district. You're a coalition, majority minority district, and the key is how do those coalitions vote? So. Uh, and I'd hate to like overgeneralize, but let's just say we have uh, green voters and blue voters. Mm-hmm. If those green voters vote for the green candidate all the time, and blue voters vote for the blue candidate all the time, they're not a coalition. Right. But they tend to both vote for the one candidate or the other, that's a coalition. That would then, in theory, allow you to have um, these coalition districts which meet the Voting Rights Act. Now, I don't know if that's going to pass muster with a court. Uh, Ten years ago, Republicans drew a majority Hispanic district and one Hispanic district that was not quite majority for voting age population. It was getting on the, on the doorstep of there. They argued that when growth was taken into account, future growth, it'd get there, therefore they should be okay. The federal court said, no, you have to move this one line to create two majority Hispanic districts. 
that was 10 years ago. Courts have shifted where are we at now. And Democrats have realized that the more you pack black and Hispanic voters into certain districts, the more you dilute your power politically, right? Because you end up having super democratic districts that yes, they guarantee election of a black or Hispanic candidate, but it also means you're, you're packing your voters into districts and you have less chance to win more seats because of that packing. All right. I think I think we got most of it, JR. <laughs> um, the one thing about the people's maps that we should notice is they're going to continue taking yes. a public input and then they're going to produce a final product uh, early November. And then for the Republicans' maps, like we mentioned, public hearing, first public hearing for people's input Thursday, and then expect it on the floor early November. And then at some point, these all become submissions to a court somewhere to say, this is the map you should pick. All right. <laughs> Is everyone still with us? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I sure hope so. All right, let's move on. There was, there's so much news this yes. week. Um, and one of the big headlines is, will former Congressman Sean Duffy run for governor? Mm -hmm. He got uh, called out by President Trump over last weekend. Now, former Republican Sean Duffy um, in 2019 resigned because he wanted to spend more time with his family. But if President Trump is tapping on the shoulder, um, I guess you gotta, you got to answer his call, right? You have to um, think about it for sure. <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's first just, uh, this is uh, the quote from President Trump. Uh, Working hard to get very popular and capable former Congressman Sean Duffy for Wisconsin to run for governor. He would be fantastic. A champion athlete, Sean loves the people of Wisconsin and would be virtual, virtually unbeatable. Now, we kind of talked about Duffy's history. Mm -hmm. You, you know, talked to some sources as well. I did yesterday. He's making some calls, so he's, he's considering. Yes, but I've said a million times, yeah. it's a big difference between considering and running. Mm -hmm. And the problem for Sean Duffy is he has done nothing to date to prepare for Run 2022. Now, he's moved his family to New Jersey. Uh, his wife, Rachel Campos Duffy, is a co-host on Fox News. Sean's a contributor. He's also lobbying they've got a nice life out in the East Coast. That is not a big deal in terms of like accepting residency in Wisconsin to run. He's still got a cabin up in the Hayward area. It's easy to kind of come back to Wisconsin, establish your voting, just all that kind of good stuff. Mm -hmm. It is though a sign that you weren't thinking about this before the president called you and you haven't built a campaign. Sean Duffy has about 2.1 million bucks in his federal campaign account as a report from last Friday. You can't transfer it to a state account. Right. You've got to build it from scratch. Now you can make a PAC donation, stuff like that, but you have to build from scratch a state campaign. He has not done that, which makes people I talk to you think this is likely not going to happen. Could what? he build it? Yes. Right. Could he get up and running? Absolutely. But he's not in position to do it, and he's got a lot of work to do. And oh, by the way, just two years ago, he felt need to resign from Congress, spend more time with his family because his ninth child was going to be born with Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. That child's now two years old. Why is it okay now to suddenly say, okay, I can run for statewide office again when I had to leave for my family just two years ago? And you're talking about building this campaign. You've got to do a lot of groundwork. Well, the only one that's really doing that right now is Rebecca Clayfish, the former lieutenant governor, who's been, seems like, campaigning ever since she left office. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this could have some impacts if, big if, if Duffy enters the race. But I spoke to Bill McCaution yesterday, a longtime GOP strategist who also was considering mm -hmm. a run and decided not to for governor. Um, he kind of talked about how there should be a competitive GOP primary. This is probably as competitive as, as it could get, <laughs> but it could be a little troubling for Becky to compete with someone who already got the nod and the encouragement. I mean, basically, this almost an endorsement for, mm -hmm. uh, from President Trump. Oh, and as much as I say it's hard to build a campaign from scratch, if you have Trump's endorsement in a primary, that goes a long way. Long way. <laughs> um, 
Now, my perception is that there are some people in, in Republican circles in Wisconsin who don't think very highly of Clayfish's chances, who think they need a stronger candidate, and they may have the president's ear that maybe they're pushing to do this. But Trump also has this impulsive personality, right? At least his reputation. So did he like see Rachel Campos Duffy on TV one night and watching Fox News and say, hey, you know what? I should call Sean. Exactly. We don't know like what's driving this. Know. Right. Um, but again, I, I'm somewhat doubtful about whether he'll actually get in. Then the question is, those people who don't want Clayfish, the nominee, where do they go? Eric Hovde, where else? Can they find somebody's an alternative? Um, John Mako's still talking about it. Kevin Nicholson's weighing Senate and governor. Um, it's not clear what the alternative would be. And, uh, you know, for Clayfish, though, it's not great because you're kind of, it's only hitting the pause button. Because if you're a donor, do you go, well, maybe I should hold off for just a second. Right. I don't know that's going to really throw her off her game, but it's definitely a little speed bump on the path to nomination for her. All right. I, I feel like I say this often. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see what happens. <laughs> um, this week was another busy uh, session day for the state Senate. Um, we've, we've talked about this on the show before. Um, this time, of course, abortion bills. They're bound for Governor Evers' veto pen. The Assembly is going to take up some of them next week. Let's just highlight a few of them. Uh, one would uh, create a mechanism to cut off funding to abortion providers. Another would require doctors to tell women who are choosing medical-induced abortions that the doctors would have to say that they could be reversed. Mm -hmm. Now I'll get to some mm -hmm. doctors who are disputing that claim. Uh, another one would require doctors to ensure parents an unborn child who tests positive for a con congenital condition to receive information about that condition and just banning abortions overall based on reasons for the child's sex, race, or disability. Um, now I do want to talk about the, the second bill about doctors mm -hmm. telling women that their medical-induced abortion could be reversed. Um, we heard Senator Janet Buley um, talk talk uh, re-testimony from an emergency mm -hmm. room physician. They're saying that there is no evidence that this is happening. We've had medical groups and advocacy groups also speak out about this bill, that it also could be very potentially harmful uh, for women who go through that. Also want to point out that if the first round of medication doesn't work, women are allowed to take it again. Um, we've talked about a lot of these bills before. Um, they're not going to go anywhere, mm -hmm. but all about firing up that base, improving when they go back to their districts. You know, I fought uh, for these abortion bills. Yeah. There are also a number of them up in assembly committee this week. Um, passed most of them party lines, though sometimes Republicans oppose some of the bills because they didn't go far enough. For example, the one that we cut off funding for abortion providers, basically if you are a abortion provider or associated with one, you'd be cut off from the Medicaid program, medical assistance. Um, there is an exception under the bill that passed the Senate for providers who, who perform abortions due to rape, incest, life and health of the mother. There's a different version of that bill that does not include the exception. And some Republicans want the no exception bill. That one passed out of committee. The one w both passed out of committee in the Assembly, but in one case, one Republican voted against the no exception bill, one voted against the exception bill. Yeah. So it shows you that there is a while Democrats, the crisis is extreme, there's still a, a farther right position on some of these bills that there might be a couple no votes in the Senate on the assembly floor when they come up, depending on what version go, goes to the floor. Some want them to go farther, others yes. to just want it the, the way it is. Mm -hmm. um, let's just take a quick uh, listen to the debate on these abortion bills and then we'll move on to the next topic. What we're doing here is we are making sure that a woman has the most information she can, the best information she can. So if she makes the decision, 
to say after the first pill that's taken in a chemical abortion, if she chooses not to take the second pill, and her, her physician can tell her this, it's more information so that she can make a better informed decision and she knows that she can continue the pregnancy, she may continue the pregnancy if she chooses. I think it's really important to make sure that, that we inform and, again, empowerment of women in their decision on this is what this bill does, and I think everybody should be able to get behind that. This isn't more information for women. You're not giving women more information. You're giving women or forcing doctors to give women some misinformation. And as a result of something like this, somebody's going to die. It'll happen if this were to become law. Science, medicine, information, and somebody's opinion turns into misinformation. And where we are as state senators, we should be all about the actual information based on the facts of science and based, based on the facts of medicine, not based on something I think. A state legislature and a governor, and it doesn't matter if it's Wisconsin, pick your state, whatever, should never get in the way and in between of a woman making a health care decision based on her situation. Now, JR, it wouldn't be a week on the show if we didn't <laughs> touch on the, the updates on the Gableman investigation. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot to unpack here, but let's kind of, I guess, timeline started out. So, or a just yesterday, um, Attorney General Josh Call is seeking to block Gableman's subpoenas, specifically the ones that were issued to the Wisconsin's Elections Commission. Now, these were filed in Madison, and they're basically asking a judge to declare the sub subpoenas unenforceable under state law, U.S. Constitution, and Wisconsin law. And it also wants to s prevent Gableman from enforcing the sub subpoenas to bring in WEDC or other election officials to testify in private. We know mm -hmm. that was a big concern of them going to this office in Brookfield. They didn't feel like that was appropriate. It should instead be in front of the Elections Commission and the members on that. Um, so that's one aspect. Earlier in the week, too, we heard from Speaker Voss for the first time in a long time um, saying he doesn't even want to release these records related to the election, which a lot of people want to get their hands on, especially Gableman, to review how these election grants were distributed to many municipalities. And on WPR this week, he compared releasing those records to a um, investigator if he would release um, a murder investigation details about it before it was complete. So we got all that. Now, we just today, this morning, landed in, I guess, your desk first, <laughs> uh, the Legislative Audit Bureau. Now, this is the other investigation going on, in or investigation, I guess, nonpartisan mm -hmm. investigation going on um, in the state legislature. Their key findings we're going to get into. Um, they wrapped up their work, and kind of the biggest headline, um, I think we could both agree, is that they want the Wisconsin Elections Commission should implement rules if they believe municipal clerks should or should not be filling in these absentee ballot envelopes. There was missing witness signatures, um, missing addresses on some of these forms. So let's just start right there. Okay. <laughs> let's start with so the Audit Bureau. Audit Bureau, um, this has been a big complaint for Republicans, right, about how executives are operating, that it's giving guidance without giving us rules. When you do the rules process, you have to promulgate rules, which are then submitted to legislature for review. You give a scope statement to kind of the framework of it. They get a first kick of the cat there. They then get to look at the final rule. They can suspend it. They can do all kinds of things. So 
Republicans want more control over the Elections Commission, what is doing. Now, this advice about filling missing information has been in place since 2016. So only became an issue when Trump lost Wisconsin. Republicans right. went, we got an issue in our hands. That said, the Audit Bureau also wants, uh, or suggests the Elections Commission should also promulgate rules about drop boxes. It's kind of this gray area in state law about whether they're even allowed. They provided best practices to clerks last spring saying, look, if you're going to use them, here's what's going on in other places. So the Audit Bureau is saying, put in the rules process. Do it this way. Republicans would love to see that. Um, a couple of things else that I looked through real quick. They sampled absentee ballot certificates. So uh, if you have an absentee ballot certificate that's missing information, remember the kinds where you can fill in stuff? They looked and found some that had like partial witness addresses. You know, they didn't have witness addresses in its entirety. They were a small number, but there were still some. And in a race of 20,000 votes, that gets attention. Um, there are also issues, for example, where clerks initialing um, the absentee ballot certificates in certain situations. Now, you're supposed to, clerks supposed to initial them, but the audit found that less than 1% of the certificates reviewed in former spouses had been initialed. Why is that important? Well, you're supposed to in state law, but the clerks said, well, we did other things. For example, the people who requested the ballots registered and eligible to receive them. The clerks had printed the names and addresses of the individuals on the certificates to signify that they were eligible to receive the ballots, or they initialed the ballots from the certificates. So, Often what happens with these things is there is human error or human interpretation of what you're supposed to do and human practice. So I don't know if any of these things are really, truly like red flags red, just yeah, yet. Right. It may be human error or human practice that is an issue and we need to clean up how things are run. And it's important to note that, of course, all of these absentee ballots, clerks saw a huge massive amounts than any before because of the pandemic. So people were filling these out for the first time. Mm-hmm. Doesn't make, you know, not saying that, you know, they should have still figured out how to do it, but everyone was kind of going as fast as they could to try to get this done and at least increase participation as much as they could. But it does bring up questions whether or not that was right or wrong for mm-hmm. clerks to act. Um, wrapping up the Gableman thing, um, kind of what we now know next that he's going to be looking at, possibly he's brought up voting machines over the last few days that he might be looking into that. Um, he's now pushing back the interviews that were scheduled today with um Clerks, well, no, no mayor. The person most knowledgeable <laughs> okay. of the election. So that, that, thank you. I'm like, now I'm losing my yes. timeline. Um, he's pushing back at least interviews to November 15th with mm-hmm. those city officials. Yep. And one quick note about the law, the motion that uh, Call filed. What he's saying is that state law, in his opinion, says you can interview people, but before a committee. Right. You can't bring them in to a private office and do this because you're working under a legislative committee. It also argues that what basically Gable is doing is a law enforcement action. He's taking depositions. He's acting like a prosecutor. That is a violation of separation of executive of powers, executive and legislative branches. Now, I often am not a lawyer, mm-hmm. which I say because lawyers disagree about these things. Right. But this is Call's position, and what's going to be interesting to watch is does a Dane County judge shut down the Gable probe or? We end up in court to figure out if he can even do what he's trying to do. Exactly. And is this going to pause Gableman's investigation? We know how long sometimes these suits can take. So is Gableman going to wrap up before that? We don't know. It was supposed to end October 31st. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Um, <laughs> all right. Stock picks. All right. All right. Rising so, this week, Mandela Barnes. So he raised $1.1 million. Um, we kind of knew like the rough number uh, last week's show, but we got the report late Friday. He had a better small dollar operation than anybody else in the Senate field, about 400 some thousand bucks raised. They're called unitemized contributions, 200 bucks or less. Why is that important? Those are the donors who give you 
10, 15, 20 bucks at a time. You can hit them up time and time again. Um, they can do a lifeblood of a campaign. They're a huge part of fundraising these days. That's a good sign for Barnes. Sierra Galuski, we knew she'd give a million bucks for campaign. It was 315 grand in a personal contribution, 685 in a loan. Lazary loaned himself $750,000, so his million bucks was a little bit inflated. Mm -hmm. um, Johnson raised $906,000, so Barnes out raising everybody. Same time, he's not knocking out of the park. Nobody is right now. If you look at like nationally, the numbers that people are raising, it is astronomical. And there's a story this week in political about black candidates for the U.S. Senate and what they're raising. And there's like some eye-popping numbers. Barnes is at the back of that pack. So while he's in a great position, he's raising his first report. He's raised the bar. He's got to raise it higher. And there's a Republicans were tickled pink about a story in a national location that raised questions about how much money Dems are raising and if they can beat Johnson. They're like, look, these right. guys, yeah, it's a nice number for like Wisconsin, but it's not enough. Don't forget, however... The State Democratic Party is a fundraising machine. They will have resources galore in that race if they need them. And Barnes still has the opportunity to raise to, to show he's got what it takes. He has got an opportunity now to not just say, okay, I'm, I'm the front runner, which, which this reinforces he's the front runner, but to put space between him and Galuski and Lazary and, and uh, Nelson and say, I'm really, really the front runner. This thing is mine. You got to come take it from me. Right, and um, we got to see what's going to happen over the next few months too, because a lot of fundraising can change. And like you said too, once the primary happens, that's when DPW steps in, and they are a big, big money maker right and, now. I mean, they outraised the Wisconsin GOP. I want to oh, say times times three yeah. um, in the 2020 election cycle. How much longer can Lazary and Galuski keep writing big checks? I mean, now I've seen the reports. How much they have? They've got plenty of money. But what's their appetite for keeping the right checks? And also, if you're going to keep writing checks, you're not really getting people to buy into your campaign. That's kind of a struggle, right? Being a wealthy candidate, either run on your own checkbook, a la Herb Cole, or tell people, look, I'm just going to grease the skids, but I need your help. Like, how do you message that? It's a little bit of a challenge for a wealthy candidates sometimes. Right, it's more easier for someone to take out five bucks instead of, here, here's a check for <laughs> 10 grand. Yeah. Um, uh, mix. Now, this was pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. I, I, en I enjoyed reading this article that you wrote about the transgender athlete bills. There was one lawmaker, Republican specifically, who voted against them in committee. Yeah, Joan Balwig, uh, Mark Azan. So, uh, look, this is book, one of those culture war issues that we're seeing ahead of 2020 election, right? This critical race theory um, masks, mandates, COVID, you're just seeing this left and right. This, these bills about banning transgender athletes, um, people who are born male and are transitioning female or transgender females from playing girls sports in high school or women's in college, um, they had all kinds of momentum. Like, you know, this is a hot topic for the base. They want it. It was going to, Baldwig votes no. Uh, and I was a paper ballot in committee. And so I talked to Baldwig afterwards. She said two reasons. One, the WIAA and NCAA should be allowed to kind of figure this out on their own. And two, she coached, she chaired the Speaker's Task Force on Suicide Prevention last session while in the Assembly. Know that uh, transgender students are more likely to face um, all kinds of ish mental health issues yeah. than others, and that this is not really where we should be going. So it's an interesting stand, and it, quite frankly, kind of a, a, a bold one at times because our, Bold uh, one to break away from the party. We don't yeah. see that often. That's why I was like, very interesting get that. You, I mean, yes, it was paper ballot, so, it, you know, not a lot of yep. people can click no. in and, you know, search those. But My question is, are there three more like her in the Senate caucus? That's what I was just going to bring up. Because it's 21 to 12 right now. Uh, Andre Jacques is recovering from COVID. He won't be on the floor anytime soon. So you're at 20. Take away ball, you're at 19. You can lose two more and still pass a bill out of the Senate. You can't lose three. 
So who else is there? Is this more of a processing? Because Andre Jacques, who's still recovering, but he's chairing the committee and you know voting my paper ballot, he pushed this through. Is this a process thing where the caucus has to have a conversation? They'll get on board. Balwig may be a no, but everybody else is going to be okay with it. Or is there a real problem? This bill might not make it through the Senate. All right, we'll see. And uh, might be back next week. Well, nothing's <laughs> been finalized for the Senate, but the Assembly will. Um, and falling this week is student test tours. DPI released new numbers yesterday. Yeah, look, uh, COVID, not a great time yeah. to be a student. <laughs> Fewer kids took standardized tests, and the ones that did scored worse than they did before. So not great. And it's kind of across the board that shows the impact of COVID on education and also the ground we made up from what's been going on. All right. Thanks so much, Jr. All right, guys, that's it. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. We'll see you next week. Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.